know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone so I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of Anglophies. So much democracy, I could puke edition. Title convention shamelessly stolen from the Slate uh, Pop Culture Gabfest. I don't care. Anyway, hi, I'm Raiden, and I'm tired of democracy. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee, and I'm also tired of democracy. I'm feeling so smugly superior right now. Yes, that's because your prime minister rocks. <laughs> What's it like to have the hottest world leader out of the pack? Not that it's a tough competition, but... Mm. Even my mother has come to the Trudeau side. Wow. Yeah. That picture of the pandas pushed her mm. over. <laughs> As somebody put it on Twitter, Manic Pixie Dream Prime Minister. Okay. <laughs> that person's brilliant. I was actually kind of curious, uh, because we're getting, from what I can see, quite a bit of local press about his state visit to the US. Is there press in the States about it? Of course there is. Obama locked him on hockey. And uh, the Obama girls went to the state dinner and... It's kind of adorable to have watched them grown up for the past eight years. <laughs> I saw a hilarious video of Obama trying and failing to pronounce Mississauga. It was pretty funny. Well, that sounds about right. This is what we want democracy to always be. Just Obama and Trudeau gently rubbing one another over hockey. And then the Obama girls geeking out over Ryan Reynolds. Right. With the occasional shot of Joe Biden feeling sad because Obama <laughs> has a new boyfriend. <laughs> I would like to point out that the White House pastry chef did not use Canadian maple syrup in the dessert, and I feel like this warrants an international incident. Okay, but, but, why would you go someplace just to eat the same thing that you're able to get at home all the time? Because you're the Prime Minister and you should be exercising your right all the time. For free maple syrup. <laughs> Just... Does that not come with the job? Well, Pretty... of course it comes with the job. You can get it at home. <laughs> Occasionally it's nice to, you know, experience another country's maple syrup. It's not an international incident. This is diplomacy. I'm sure that maple syrup was cleared by the State Department. <laughs> I want that job. It is hilariously an actual episode of The West Wing. Yes. <laughs> the proper usage of the correct maple syrup. Yes. Yeah. So, I am working on some local campaigns in the Boston area, which means that for the past three weeks, I've hit 10 or 15 local caucuses, which are not the same thing as the presidential primary caucuses. These are the local Democratic ward committees getting together and deciding who's going to be their delegate to the state Democratic convention in June. What we're going to be doing at the state convention, I don't know. Because 
when I, the only one I've been to was one where we had to settle on the people who were going to be on the primary ballot for governor and attorney general and a few other things. And this is not the right year for that. So I don't know what we're going to be doing at the state convention. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I can feel my eyes crossing. Like as much as I think the Canadian system is flawed, the American system is incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible. And you know who we can you know thank for this, right? Somehow I think the answer is Alexander Hamilton. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> no, federalism is terrible. Federalism is just a pain in the ass. Is there any actual democracy buried anywhere in there? In theory? Sure. Because here's the thing. Is that that this is all party-based. And what the parties have to do is not that related to democracy as such. So they can set their own rules for how you decide who delegates are. So... The presidential primary process is completely different from the state's primaries for who's going to be on the final ballot in the general election for, um, like, state representative or congressperson or U.S. senator or state senator. But the presidential primary process is terrible, and this is why there's so much fucking democracy it just drags on forever, and it, it makes me think that going back to the bad old days of a couple of guys in smoke-filled rooms deciding, okay, well, who are we going to choose to be our presidential candidate this year? FDR seems pretty good. Let's go with that. They didn't always make terrible decisions, right? <laughs> That's always. a great slogan. <laughs> decisions weren't always terrible. <laughs> Well, look what happens when you let the people get involved. Awful That's true. Things. Awful things. But, I mean, I guess the final point is it's not so much as you're letting the, the people are not so much involved as they get to have the illusion of involvement. Right. Under the current system. Yeah. And, I mean, it still all goes to, like, who has access to the vote. One of the things that has certainly hurt Bernie Sanders in some of the earlier races is that the younger people who are his voting base may not really understand the rules, no matter how many times he tried to explain it to them on Tumblr. God knows lots of people tried. On hmm. Tumblr? Oh, that's a disaster from the start. Still, I mean, we tried to explain it to them on, on many levels. Tumblr was where I saw a lot of it. Just saying, look, this is how you register to vote. This is your deadline to register to vote. This is how you find out your polling place. This is how you find out the rules for the primary. Here's how this works. If you want Bernie to be your president, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And just posting about how much you really like him on Twitter isn't going to do it. Mm -hmm. Is any of this taught in schools? Because, for example, here in Canada, my school didn't have any kind of the high school civic. I mean, I guess you could take civics as a class probably, but if you didn't, it wasn't mandatory. And I honestly am starting to feel like there needs to be a lot more practical, this is how the world works type of stuff that has to happen in high school before you let the kids graduate. I know that when I was in high school, civics was a class that you could test out of. And I did. So I don't actually know what was covered in civics. 
the test to get out of it was super easy. And I strongly suspect that civics as a thing is not really taught so much. No. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly part of, part of the problem is like, yes, we, we all get angry about superdelegates every 48 years. And like, we had this exact same, oh my God, superdelegates are destroying the process argument with Hillary and Obama in 2008. And those of us who remember that argument are just tired. Because we know how it ends. We just like cut to the chase. Like, whatever. It feels like there's a lot of 2008 in this race, but just with way more fascism. Yes. Like, we can just we can just call Donald Trump a fascist, right? Because there are so many people skipping around calling him that. There are literal Nazi salutes going on at his rallies. The yeah. man is a fascist. The man is a, yeah, he's a total fascist. Yes. And I will, like, the first time I really paid attention to what was happening with primaries was 2008. And I didn't really delve into exactly how the whole system worked as a whole until um, Mark was doing, was watching the West Wing. And I was doing my explain some shit stuff for each episode because I knew that a lot of Mark's readers weren't, were either Americans, but young and not, hadn't been quite educated in how the political process works or they weren't American and had no idea. Mm -hmm. So for any of our foreign listeners who is looking at all this bullshit and going, why do you keep voting like every week? Would you like to know? I'm going to tell you. (laughs) So the United States has two major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. They're both awful in their own ways, but I think certainly in the past eight years or so, the Republicans have gotten way worse than they were. And in order to determine who each party is going to say is their presidential nominee, There are either elections or caucuses in each state to determine how many delegates to the National Republican or National Democratic Convention each candidate gets. And if you get more than 2,000 and change, or 1,000 and change, depending on which party, then you're going to win the nomination. Now, if, just for funsies... (laughs) No one in the initial primaries actually gets enough delegates based purely on the votes held in each state. We have what's called a brokered convention because the delegates that are determined by each state's primary election are only pledged to the candidate for the first ballot. So if you have the first ballot and nobody has enough votes to be officially the the nominee, then... What happens is we open a big bag of chaos and a total free-for-all and there will be multiple votes and God knows exactly what's going to happen. We haven't had a brokered convention since, I believe, the 20s. For either party. For either party. There have been some that were close, but that is kind of where we are at the moment. And at this point, I am saying... Dear Santa, all I want for an early Christmas present is a brokered Republican convention. Please, Santa, I've been so good. (laughs) 
For those of our listeners who have seen The West Wing, the brokered convention is what happened during, what, season six, right? Yeah, the very end of season six. The Democratic one, okay. Yeah, so there was a lot of horse trading and, like, if you give your delegates to this candidate, then you'll get these political favors. And it's usually a sign that there is no sort of party unity I mean, which we can already see is pretty much true, certainly on the Republican side, but it's also pretty true on the Democratic side at this point. Yeah, so my country's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, it's really hard to enjoy the implosion of the Republican Party when Donald Trump might do very well out of it. Yeah. Like, otherwise, this would be the stuff that I would be dying to read about in the next John Halperin Game Change book. Mm Mm-hmm. I would have that thing on pre-order already. Yeah. The problem is, is when the U.S. goes to hell in a handbasket, it kind of takes the rest of it with yeah. it. Yes. Yes. And we can't afford to go further down to hell in a handbasket in the U.K. We're about to get a vote in June as to whether or not we want to stay in the European Union. Oh, God. David Cameron, our Conservative Prime Minister, is ostensibly for staying in the European Union, but his frenemy, Boris Johnson who is both an MP and mayor of London, but doesn't do either of those jobs because he's a power-hungry, narcissistic fuckwit, has decided that his conscience cannot allow him to support staying in the EU, which means that he sees it as more politically advantageous to be supporting what they're calling the Brexit, which makes it sound like serial, but that's another matter entirely. The Brexit? The British exit from the EU. Brexit. I... I, No. No. I'm I'm sorry. You can't... You can't leave the EU, certainly not if you're going to call it that. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm not happy with this either. But what about second Brexit? Wop wop. <laughs> Richard Ayoade has already referred to it as brunch on the way out of the door. <laughs> so yeah, the issue is the big, well, the big politically contentious issue right now in Europe is the refugee crisis, which I refuse to call the migrant crisis. You know, mm. people are fleeing Syria because their lives are on the line. It has nothing to do with them wanting to come to UK to claim benefits, which is what some horrible racist people think. Mm. But this has obviously seen the rise of the right in Europe, particularly in places like France, where Marine Le Pen's basically fascist party is rising through the ranks because all of their policies are, let's blame the slightly dark people for it. So people have got this idea that if we leave the European Union, it will stop immigration. It won't. No, it won't. I mean, it's one of those ideas, just if you criminalise something, it doesn't mean it will go away, you know? But (laughs) So that's the main problem with this debate right now. And for a lot of people, all they know about the European Union is uh, all those loony laws we get from Brussels. And it's like, yeah, those loony laws are the European Convention of Human Rights, uh, freedom of trade, freedom of movement, immigration. All of you old people who retired to Spain suddenly complaining about there being too many immigrants in Britain. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Issues of childcare, paid maternity leave, union rights. All of this is tied up in the European Union. Fisheries, which is a big deal in Scotland. Oil, another big deal in Scotland. It's kind of interesting because the Scottish National Party, who supported Scottish independence and are currently the majority government in Scotland, because I, I, that's a, I can't even get into that. 
but they are supporting staying in the EU, but what they want is to get a second referendum on independence. So Scotland will become independent, but they want to stay in the European Union because it's stronger when we stick together and they see no irony in claiming that. I have zero patience for the Scottish Nationalist Party right now. They've claimed that they are, you know, the great progressive party of Scotland, but they've reenacted incredibly restrictive cuts to council taxes, sort of to localise government, where they deal with, you know, schools, infrastructure, local hospitals, local police and things like that. And a number of councils were threatening to raise taxes on their own just uh-huh. to pay for basic things, and they were refused the right to do that. They had to accept the cuts on the table, which have meant lots of job cuts. But you cannot explain this to independent supporters, because as far as they're concerned, everything terrible that happens is somehow Westminster's fault. So it's just this exhausting process of trying to reason with the brick wall that is someone who thinks everything will be solved if Scotland breaks apart from the United Kingdom. This idea that there'll be this great socialist utopia, not understanding that Scotland has devolution, which is we have power over health, education, policing, local kind of council rights. We don't do defence. We're about to get our own slight rules on taxation and we're about to get control over the welfare system, which will be great if they actually know what to do with it. But mm. they've got, they, people act like that's not a thing. They, they think that this is all run by Westminster. And this is why Scotland's struggling so much. It's like, no, Scotland's deficit is double what the rest of the UK is. And that's ours. That's nothing to do with with David Cameron. So that's a really hard thing to combat. And I'm also just really tired of racist rhetoric surrounding the, the British exit. I'm not calling it that name. Because <laughs> so much of it, it just seems to be, I want the immigrants out. And it's like, for fuck's sake, is that... All you can think about. Are you so heartless and callous that you can blame everything on a group of people who are fleeing a war-torn country and risking their lives by crossing the fucking Mediterranean in a dinghy? So yeah, Europe is joining America in the hell in a handbasket, but our handbasket is slightly smaller. Mm. And it won't be as classy as Trump's because he's a real classy guy. Yeah. So this is why we're all really excited about Justin Trudeau, because it's nice to have a very small version of a political utopia for once. We just climbed out of our handbasket. <laughs> right. Like, Stephen Harper has delivered us, and now we're trekking back. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, and that gives, you know, that gives me a little bit of hope for the rest of us. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, the two-party system is it's terrible. It's terrible, and there is no real good way to fix it. Like, I get that it's really scary to dismantle a political system. Like, at least right now, you know, the so the, the trains run on time, so to say. You know what I mean? The basic. <laughs> we don't have trains here. No, 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 no. That's adorable. No, we don't do trains. Okay, you have trains because I've taken them and have gotten the plague on them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the only interesting thing happening here in Canada... Well, no, I mean, I'm sure there's more than one, but one that I've noticed in the news, because I've kind of tuned out for a bit after this election concluded, is something that's happening with our Senate, because Justin Trudeau is very much pro-Senate reform, the Senate being kind of one of those contentious political things in the Canadian landscape. Uh, One of the things he did to indicate his kind of seriousness 
about this issue is before even the um, before the election, when he was still just the leader of the Liberal Party, is he he kicked out all the senators from the Liberal caucus, mm-hmm. which was at the time the only thing that was under his purview. So then technically all the Liberal senators became independents. And this happened, that happened a while ago, but this past week or maybe two weeks ago, there were several senators who defected from the conservative caucus to become independents, and they joined several others to form their own kind of independent group. Now, the Senate under the Canadian Charter is meant to be, is, there's, there's a quote about it, it's meant to be a, uh, provide sober second reflection, over sober sober reflection on any law that is passed by the parliament, kind of a, a second opinion of sorts. Mm-hmm. So there are many ways uh, that our politicians and pundits and, and constitutional scholars are, you know, debating on how do you approach that? Like, is the Senate necessary? I think, um, despite it not being an elected body, it is currently appointed by the prime minister. Uh, a lot of people still agree that yes, it, you know, it can't help to have that check and balance. It's just that right now it's kind of the prime minister just appoints it as political favor and they vote through whatever laws he approves of. So how do you get back to that sober second, sober reflection, you know, the second opinion nature of it? And I, th- I think divorcing it from the uh, major political parties is a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Take it out of the caucus. Maybe I think Trudeau, in when he was still running as part of his platform, uh, said he wants to eventually get to a point where there is a nonpartisan commission that will appoint senators as opposed to it being a prime minister appointment. Mm-hmm. And then they won't be beholden. And it looks like we are kind of moving towards that and the senators themselves are moving towards that. This is especially because several there's been recently several very high profile scandals when it comes to uh spending mm-hmm. senate spending and oversight so they've they've definitely kind of fallen out of favor and there's an air of it's gotten out of hand so some a lot of political cleaning up is needed so that's on on a canadian political front that's where some of the interesting things are happening right now yay <laughs> it's a lot more low key <laughs> right well we're sort of taking all of the the political hot air for everybody. In, I know I say this all the time, but I, I just cannot for the life of me wrap my head around this two-year monstrosity of a process. Like, how does anybody have the stamina? I mean, no one does. I mean, it, this is one of the reasons that nothing gets done in Congress is because you, you know, if you're a house, if you're a representative, you have to be reelected every two years, which means you have to spend a lot of time raising money and running for reelection. Mm-hmm. And in theory, the Senate, since they only run for reelection every six years, should be able to be less up their electorate's asses and can spend more time up their own asses. But it's still like so bogged down in party identity politics that that you know god forbid you have a thought about doing something against the the uh plan that the party gives you like you know appointing a new supreme court justice there's those what do you think is happening with the supreme court justice do you think an appointment will happen or do you think the republican party will successfully filibuster a supreme court justice appointment for an entire year i don't know 
I mean, they don't even need they don't even need to filibuster it. They can just Mitch McConnell can just go. No, nah, we're not going to hold a hearing on it, and they have to hold a hearing in the Judiciary Committee before it can go before the full Senate. And I think the reason that Obama hasn't named anybody at this point is because he knows that McConnell will not give him a hearing. And I mean, the reality is that Supreme Court appointments have happened in election years before and sure democrats have said yeah we don't really want to do this but they sucked it up and did their job and did it anyway i just i i keep on watching you know the sound bites and the audacity of basically saying as far as we're concerned this president only gets seven years well three if you you know if you go just by term you know the people have the people will the people have spoken they elected a president yeah yeah, they did, but apparently black presidents only get three-fifths of a term. Yeah, that was one of the most brilliant soundbites. Yeah. <laughs> and the Republicans wonder why Donald Trump has become a thing. Cause and effect means nothing to this party. No, nothing. Not that the other candidates are any better. You have literally the most hated man in the world. You've got the robot, and then you've got that other guy who everyone pretends is moderate, but he in- inflicted Ohio with some of the most restrictive abortion limitations it's true. However, however, let me tell you this. Samantha Bee's new show, if you're not watching oh, it's Samantha so good. Bee's new show, you should be. Because she's amazing. And Samantha Bee convinced my father, who is a Republican, small R at this point. He hates the party, but he likes small government. He doesn't really see how the Republican social values and the Republican economic values are really super intertwined. He doesn't, doesn't understand that. But he was, you know, also thinking, oh, Kasich seems kind of like a moderate and certainly more reasonable than these other assholes. And then Samantha B did a segment on him and he went, oh, no, 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 I'm not gonna, no, I can't do that. So national treasure, Samantha B. Thank you, Canada, for sending her over. We appreciate it. The show is really, really good. It is so good. Actually, there's been some really interesting kind of political late night stuff on the show- talk shows. Like, Larry Wilmore's show is excellent. I think Trevor Noah gets a bad rap. I actually like a lot of his work on The Daily Show right now. Samantha B is brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you don't watch Jimmy Fallon, you're okay. Or James oh. Corden, you guys can keep him. I don't get that. Yeah, and uh, Craig Craig Ferguson has a new show on history called Join or Die. Where he has a panel of three people and they discuss important issues of history, like who was history's best frenemies? <laughs> <laughs> or what was the worst medical intervention that happened ever? It's, it kind of, it is really interesting to see a non American in his take on American history, especially in his very delightful accent. I kind of love it. It's like it's true growly Scottish accent. Haley, you're just not that growly, except when you're kind of drunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. You're welcome. Well, you feature the country for that, okay? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes he has questionable guests like Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, Jimmy Fallon is fine. He's inoffensive. He's funny. You, when he, he, come, he comes up with fun things because he knows that he's not very good at interviewing. Oh, he's so bad at interviewing. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be potentially libelous here, but is he on anything? I have no idea. He seems very, um, let's put this nicely, um, 
Why start now? He seems cocaine adjacent. <laughs> he just says everything is great and he won't stop laughing and his laugh is really, really fake and he's not funny. And ugh. like Seth Myers has been very impressive this mm. year, I thought. But none of them should be allowed to interview presidential candidates except for Stephen Colbert. Yeah, I agree with you. I've been very much out of the late night loop. I have, I do watch John Oliver. Mm. And uh, I really enjoy some of the topics he picks because I feel sometimes they're not as covered. You know, like when he did uh, things on um, the American territories, mm-hmm. things like that. So I did enjoy when John Oliver was on pre-Canadian election and he was mocking Stephen Harper. It's like, <laughs> so his band has a shitty pun. It's a shitty French pun. And it's a <laughs> shitty French pun about how he's the prime minister. <laughs> I'm sad that we keep sending all of our cool people over to America, and then we had to take Piers Morgan back. Yeah, I'm not sorry about that. Did you have to take Simon Cowell back, or is he still in America? He's kind of bi-coastal, so yeah, it's kind of both our problems. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, so there's been so much democracy. My roommate, who's a poli-sci major, is like, we've got too much democracy. It needs to stop. (laughs) It's a little sad that democracy as a concept has existed. I mean, when did the Greeks invent it? Yeah. You know, thousands of years. And we've yet to figure out a very functional system. For example, as superior as I can feel when I look, you know, at the American go, oh, look at that mess down south. Meanwhile, here in Canada, for example, the Green Party and Bloc Québécois got the same amount of votes in the past election. And yet one of those parties has, what, 10 or 12 seats and the other has one. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to pretend like this system isn't broken in its own unique way either. Yeah, I mean, problems with the two-party system aside, at least we can get, we can say, well, you you have a clear majority. Kind of. I mean, the Electoral College is a mess. Except in your, even in your case, once, not even in the primary, once you're in the actual general election, you can end up with a president who lost the popular vote and yet won the electoral vote. That is right. That is a mathematical possibility, right? That is a mathematical possibility. It's happened twice. Ah, twice, I think. Generally, and it, I mean, we can look at our, at our House and Senate and go, you have a clear majority. Mm-hmm. And if that's a actual majority of how people feel... That depends on how gerrymandered your districts are. And I think John Oliver did a good segment on gerrymandering. I think it was him who did it about a year ago. And how, like, there's this one guy in North Carolina who has a district that is, like, so jaggedy and not even, like, this is an obvious district. But this is clearly where lines were drawn in order to get a Republican majority for this seat. It's blatantly, it's generally the Republicans who get away with the, with the gerrymandering. It's a good time. Funny that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that anywhere, at any point in the system, there's a place that could be fixed if it was a popular vote versus whatever is happening now, whether it's in a general election or maybe one of the primaries, or, or is it just much I more complicated than that? that the primary process, honestly, I think if every state did their primary voting on the same day instead of doing this this staggered, drawn-out process, 
which gives Iowa and New Hampshire some ridiculous over over importance. And if just everybody did their primary on the same day and got it over with, uh-huh. it would certainly we cut down on the number of debates, which God knows we haven't get, learned anything new from a debate in a year. Uh, other than Rubio clearly has a glitch in his programming. Oh, that and, almost made me feel sorry for him. Like, in the way that I almost felt sorry for Jeb Bush. Yeah. I was just oh. not doing it this year, were they? No. Oh, oh Jeb. It's really interesting, because in the UK, it's re- it was really clear that I think, like, the Republican leadership, that the person, that the conservative kind of talking heads and politicians and whatever in the UK really wanted was obviously Rubio and they kept spinning that oh he would be such a formidable opponent to Clinton and he really knows his stuff and he's such a you know a hard task and all these things and it's like have you literally watched any video of this man (laughs) like anything at all the man is like breadstick lightweight Mm -hmm. so yeah I think the first if I were queen of the country, designed to task with only fixing the electoral process, I'd make all the primaries on one day and just get it over with and try to have, try, and this would probably end very badly, but try to have a national conversation about the electoral college, how it works, why it works, why it was designed the way it was, and should we just get rid of it or not? So, Yeah. So That's where how many caucuses and whatever are left nationally before nationally? the conventions? I'm not sure. Primary results in calendar from the New York Times. Somewhere in the internet must be a webpage with just like a countdown to yeah. the end of all of well, it. Well, I mean, the end, the last primary, God help me, is June 14th. Ouch. Oh my God. Yeah, there's March 10th. Is that today? No. It's March 12th today. No, it's 12th the 12th. Today. I, I tell me there's three more months yeah, of just March the primaries for you. Oh my Florida, God. Illinois, Missouri, the Northern Mari- Mariana Islands Republican Caucus, North Carolina and Ohio. Then there's March 22nd with Arizona, Idaho Democratic, and Utah. March 26th has Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington all for the Democrats. Because you don't have to do these on the same day for each party. Of course not. April 5th is Wisconsin. Wyoming, New York, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island are all in April. Indiana, Guam, Nebraska, West Virginia, Kentucky, Oregon, Washington, the Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, a handful in May, and... California, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota, and D.C. and Puerto Rico are all in June. And then the national conventions are in July. And we'll see if we're all alive still then. I don't know. We might not be. I don't know. So would it be really boring of me to ask, um, should Hillary Clinton get the nomination? And let's be honest, it's pretty much an inevitability at this point that she will. Who do you think is going to be her VP? Because I know who the favorite is, but that feels like it's such a predictable choice to say it now that it probably won't be the case. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I really don't. 
I I gave up trying to predict VP picks a long time ago. I mean, Biden will stay in if, if she wants him to. That's fine. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Can he just, like, stay in the White House anyway? Like, just give him his own <laughs> thing? Yeah, just be yeah, like, and this is Biden. He He hangs out. Throw him a cookie every once in a while. It makes him happy. <laughs> Ted Cruz and Joe Biden are like the opposite ends of a spectrum of political yeah. likability. I continue to be absolutely obsessed with how much everyone hates Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, we have quotes coming out of the Senate where, like, well, if he was murdered on the Senate floor and the senators were the jury, nobody would get convicted. There's this amazing campaign video that's him surrounded by his family and they do this like close up on his dad and his dad looks like he's suffering from PTSD from having created Ted Cruz. Yeah. <laughs> but he is also the Zodiac killer, so I understand that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. If you're unfamiliar with the greatest um story of why everyone hates Ted Cruz, look up um Craig Marin, the screenwriter, who was Ted Cruz's roommate in uh I think was it Harvard or Yale, or whatever he went to, the one that he brags about, and no, Craig Mazin. And basically, everyone hated Ted Cruz so much that Craig Mazin got invited to all the cool parties out of pity for having to share a room with Ted Cruz. And to this day, Craig Mazin talks about how much he hates Ted Cruz. Yep. There's a quote where he says something along the lines of, even if I shared 100% of my political beliefs with Ted Cruz, it would only make me hate him 1% less. Yeah. <laughs> but there are all these just amazing stories about him being a total dick. And to the point where even George W. Bush hates him. Yeah. So, like, that's a level of hate, man. Yeah. But it should put to death all of those ridiculous sexist claims that Hillary Clinton isn't likable enough to be commander-in-chief. Oh, it Because this fucker's doing okay. It, it should put those to rest. Not gonna. Yeah. Because, you know, sexism and hypocrisy. Yep. So I have a bit of a, of a round table okay. for us. Um, I thought we could talk a little bit about what strategic voting means in our respective political okay. systems. Okay. Because, and it might be similar for me and Kaylee, but I think very different in America, because in America, my understanding is it would have to be, you know, possibly registering to vote in a primary, which is a party you don't it have depends. to support. Where it's, uh, <laughs> so, okay, let's start with the most pertinent and interesting one. So what would strategic voting entail in America? Strategic voting in America is when you have... You're, there's a primary and you're looking at the party that you aren't a member of or don't like and thinking, hmm, who would I rather see in the general election? Who do I think is most beatable? And you vote for that person. And some states, and because this is all state-based and states get to make their own rules and state parties get to make their own rules for how voting in primaries works, it always depends on what state you're in, if this is something you can do. In Massachusetts, if you are not officially registered as a Democrat or a Republican when you go to vote for the primary, you get to pick which ballot you want. 
So if you're generally a progressive person and would normally vote or want a Democrat in office, then you would pick the Republican ballot and go, which of these fuckers do I think can actually beat Trump? And which of these fuckers do I think that my preferred candidate or a Democrat in general could beat in the general? And you vote for that person. Is there a particular person this year that is that choice or is it just such a thin field? I don't know. Massachusetts primary was on March 1st. We voted in Super Tuesday. So I don't know who was that person, but Trump won 49% of the Republican vote here. Yes, there are a lot of racist assholes in Massachusetts. I mean, people think that it's a, you know, blue utopia. And uh, it's not, because progressivism means something very different depending on what kind of Democrat you're looking at. And they, you know, we have a couple of very large, very democratic, especially Irish democratic cities, but the Republicans, you know, they had their own primary. They could do whatever they did. That's where we are with. Here in Canada, strategic voting well, right now, because of our system of, you know, three plus parties, <laughs> by which I mean, we have the really, the right wing is kind of unified under the progressive conservatives. And then you have the liberals are really just kind of the moderate middle and the NDP is the is is the far left. And then all the other parties like Greens and Bloc Québécois are kind of niche markets. So, you know, you're always looking at one of the main three as in the running to be the actual prime minister. Which isn't what you're voting for anyway, because you're just voting for the MP in your writing. So what it comes, so the strategy for the past 15, 20 years of Canadian politics, ever since the right-leaning parties unified into progressive conservatives, has been: Do you think that the left is splitting the vote too much? And if you feel like, uh, if you're a left-leaning voter and you are worried about all the other, all these left-leaning parties splitting the vote. They, you might pick one party and say, like, in this writing, only the liberals can beat the conservatives. Or in this writing, only the NDP can beat the conservatives. And then, even though you might be actually more aligned with the Greens, you'll still vote for that, that one party. And that's where the strategy comes in. And, in fact, uh, during this last election, uh, they had, uh, like, a tech analyst on... on on the broadcasting during the election night, he was saying how Google searches for strategic voting, they always skyrocket around election nights, but they particularly did this time because people were so desperate to vote out Harper. Maybe Harper can be roommates with Ted Cruz. <laughs> There's a man that was also strong and disliked. There was a man with a serious charisma deficit. I know. I, I believe the party tried to convince him, like, to step down as leadership so that somebody else could run as leader. So basically what in the U.S. for our American listeners, where you guys have the primaries and the voters to some extent do get to choose who gets to be the party's nominee in the general, in Canada, the party itself votes for its leader and then those people get to, you know, stand. So basically we, we they get to have their caucus and, and pick the person to represent them. So, but, you know, like they couldn't... I don't know that there was really the process to quote unquote oust Harper as party leader, nor am I convinced that they necessarily thought it it was drastic enough to warrant it, even if they did have a process. But certainly I think there must have been at least some number of parties which just knew that he was not going to. 
Maybe they were hoping for another minority if they could pull it out, but obviously that didn't. The liberals, the liberal victory was called very early on in the night. I mean, the country was desperate to get rid of him. Was um, were the liberals kind of the the inevitable winners out of that then, or did the NDP in any way have a chance? Uh, and this is just kind of my personal opinion, and I know I'll, I'll give our listeners a disclaimer that I'm not quite a politically active person, so it's just kind of my general overview of uh, the news coverage and, you know, what the pundits were saying, so take that, you know, with that caveat, but I would say that after Jack Layton died, the NDP lost a lot of its ground. This was, this party during Jack Layton's tenure was a cult of personality. That he was one of the most charismatic leaders cannot be disputed. This this man, you know, the negative charisma that Harper had, that's how much positive charisma Jack Layton had. The man was brilliant, a brilliant politician, but I really and had he still be, had he been alive, he he died of uh, of cancer shortly after the election before this last one. Um, died very young was, was a huge loss to Canadian politics, I think. But really, the it was his charisma that vaulted the NDP into the uh, official opposition um, level, and I don't think that once he passed away, they, they had really hope of holding on to it. But I'm really curious how this uh, compares to strategic voting in either UK or Scotland, whichever one you think is more interesting. <laughs> oh, man. So to give some context, the Conservative government gained a minority over Labour in 2010. So they ended up entering a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats are a left of centre party who are big on civil liberties, you know. Less CCTV, less war, that kind of thing. Um, and under Tony Blair, Labour had gone more to the centre in order to win over those swing votes who would usually go Tory. And it, and it worked. They were, they were in power for 13 years. Uh, and they pr- they may not have got that with a more left candidate, although it's, it remains to be seen because in the 80s, a group of Labour MPs split off and started the Social Democratic Party, which ended up leading to a massive vote split in the 80s, which led to Thatcher getting in again. Mm-hmm. A lot of those STP members are, they went Lib Dem or Independent eventually because that didn't work out too well for them. So David Cameron gets his government with Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg and the Liberal Democrats end up making way more sacrifices than the Tories do in the name of compromise. They, after many, many years of saying they would never vote for tuition fee rises, immediately voted to treble tuition fees in England and Wales. So instead of it costing up to £3,000 a year to go to university, it can now cost up to £9,000 a year to go to university. Um, They started to dismantle the national healthcare system, the NHS in the UK. Um, Just a general swing to the right, particularly with issues of welfare, of stripping people of benefits, of trying to, quote-unquote, get people back into work, which meant basically taking all their money off of them and imagining they'll somehow pick a job from the job tree and everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. So Labour's leader at the time was Ed Miliband, who I was a fan of, was a very compromise-driven man. He was more to the left than the candidate who everyone thought was going to win the leadership, who also happened to be his older brother, which was a bit awkward. <laughs> um, Ed Milband is not a... He's a nerd, okay? He has a slightly nasally voice, and he likes baseball, 
and he likes America, and he's a bit nerdy. So this was spun as him being too, quote-unquote, weird to be Prime Minister, which was really code for too Jewish. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of coded language about him being you know, swervy and a North London intellectual, which was for a very long time code word for Jew, because the Jewish community settled heavily in North London. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Miliband's dad, Ralph Miliband, was one of the top Marxist theorists of his time. So he also was a Belgian immigrant whose name used to be Adolf, and mm. he fought for Britain in World War II. So the Daily Mail wrote an article claiming that he hated Britain, based on a diary entry he wrote as a 20-year-old immigrant claiming that it was really hard to be an immigrant during World War II, which, you know, mm-hmm. you do not need to be a historian to know that. The, the, the newspaper that wrote that article was the Daily Mail, whose previous owner, Count Rothmere, was friends with Goebbels and wrote headlines entitled Hurrah for the Black Shirts. So, you know, pot fucking fascist kettle. Mm-hmm. So, five years of basically the Labour trying to get more to the left on issues like, you know, saving the NHS, bringing down tuition fees, but also, unfairly, I thought, clinging to a lot of centrist rhetoric like tough on welfare which I, I've always think is a mistake to claim that you should be tough on welfare because those people need anything but toughness, you know? Mm-hmm. And up to the election, it was looking good. The polls were neck and neck. So the thought was, it's going to be... One of them's going to get a minority government and then you're going to have to see who's going to hustle for the coalition. And the thought was, Labour are going to have to hustle with the Scottish National Party for a coalition because they were projected to take every seat in Scotland, all 56 of them. And they ended up taking 53 which is still terrifying because uh, a lot of terrible, terrible people got elected. Really unqualified levels of terrible. But what happened on election night was the Tories got a majority. Labour did increase their number of seats. The Lib Dems were basically wiped out, but Labour were totally wiped out in Scotland except for one MP. And obviously they couldn't form a government because the Tories got their majority. Mm-hmm. So... In terms of tactical voting, I think for a lot of Scots, they saw voting SNP as a tactical vote, unless tactical and more, I voted for independence and we didn't get independence, so this will be the next big thing. Even for the SNP in Westminster, do fuck all. They mostly scream and rant. They don't tend to really vote much on policy. The only times they really grandstand on policy are policies that don't affect Scotland. They recently voted against changing the uh, laws for when you could open up businesses on Sunday. The Tories wanted to extend it, and they voted against it. Keep in mind, in Scotland, it's a totally different system, and you can have 24-hour shops in Scotland. So they actually voted against something they'd already brought in power in Scotland. They did it solely for political grandstanding. They also did a similar thing when the Tories wanted to repeal the fox hunting ban, and they says, well, we're going to vote against this repeal. And then they painted themselves as really big heroes on this. Keep in mind, the law wouldn't apply in Scotland. And in Scotland, you can actually, in certain circumstances, do fox hunting. So they've done nothing to fix that law here. But they were going to grandstand in London because it makes them look like big progressive heroes. The thing is, I feel like this is a thing that's kind of universal. The left will always tear itself apart. Yeah. yeah. Always. Oh, yeah. Um, 
So it's kind of happening in the UK right now because the Labour Party elected its most left-wing leader ever. And he won by a landslide. He got 59% of the party vote. He's called Jeremy Corbyn. He's a lovely jam-making, cycling socialist. And I voted for him in the interest of full disclaimer. But there's a lot of people in the party, a lot of MPs who are more centrist, who are doing everything in their power to undermine his authority. And because for them, it doesn't make sense that literally hundreds of thousands of people would want to vote for a guy who thinks, you know, maybe we shouldn't have intervention as our main foreign policy and maybe we shouldn't strip disabled people of £30 a week so that they're only being paid, I think, the number of nightmares £72 a week, which is, you know, completely below the poverty line. Like, very basic leftist policies. I don't agree with him in everything. I think he is a little too inexperienced in a lot of areas. But it makes no sense to me that after telling the left of the party for years and years and years, you know, please don't complain too loudly. We've got to unite together for the sake of the party. They're doing everything in their power to go to any newspaper that will listen and talk about how they don't like Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. And they, they particularly like to attack Diane Abbott. Diane Abbott is, she was the first black woman elected to parliament in the 80s. She's a very prominent figure on the very left. And she was a, a strong ally of Jeremy Corbyn. She's now currently shadow secretary for international development, issues of aid and things like that. She also used to date Jeremy Corbyn in the 70s. So the racist, misogynistic bullshit that she has to face from people in her own party, from women in her own party, white women, is astounding to me. And it's one of the reasons I'm so pissed off with a lot of the white feminism that goes on in UK politics. Because, like, you don't give a shit about women unless it's, you know, yourself. This is narcissism. This is not feminism. Mm -hmm. So the sad thing is, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's going to last. I think he will at some point drop out and then there will be another election for a leader. And it will probably go to one of the um, the more prominent centre-left women of the party, which will probably be Yvette Cooper, who was Shadow Home Secretary and is also Ed Balls' wife. Ed Balls. He's not an MP anymore. I believe he's a visiting professor at Harvard. So he's on your side of the fence now. He was also on I the... I should go say hi. Hi, so. Suzanne. Love your Twitter feed. <laughs> he was also on the Sport Relief Bake Off episode. So find out if you can. So it is sad because like I, I I don't want to underplay the real power of having women in positions of power and authority. It's an important thing because we've never had that level of gender parity. And it's going to take us a long time to get that. But I take particular umbrage to the almost blackmail attitude that if you're a woman, you need to vote for another woman because that will fix everything. Right. Because we already had Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister, and mm. that fucked up a lot of things for a lot of women. And I don't see all those women cheering for, like, Carly Fiorina, you know? Mm. So if, I feel like if you're going to be that, if you're going to place that kind of identity politics on your, in your ethos, and you're perfectly entitled to do that, I totally understand why you would want to do that, but at least be consistent. Because we also have a Scottish, you know, our first minister in Scotland is a woman. Her name's Nicola Sturgeon, but she's SNP. My mother hates her. Like, my, as far as my mother is concerned, she's going to destroy Scotland. So yeah, I, I don't know if any of that really tied together to what the original point was. <laughs> so yeah, hell in a handbasket, and the Tories suck, and I don't like the SNP, 
and Canada's looking really good right now. Speaking of mothers, you want to know what I found out a couple of weeks ago? What? My mom voted for Bush. Wait, which one? W. Once or twice? Twice. <laughs> My sister ratted her out. And I immediately texted my mom to say, what the hell, mother? You're the one who taught me how to be a Democrat. And also, remember when you discovered that your own mother voted for Goldwater because, quote, well, that's who my dad would have voted for? How do you think I feel? And she's like, no, I didn't want you to to miss that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a terrible reason, and probably not the real one. <laughs> but she is now feeling the burn, and I kind of want to get her some, you know, green for that. <laughs> Did he come up? There was his campaign, the one that came up with that slogan, or was that something that organically came from the base? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea, but somebody in his campaign did come up with and. This is racist and horrible. Mississippi burning for the Mississippi primary. Oh, oh. Yeah, 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 oh, that happened. Christ. That happened. Oh, that's bad. I, I generally really, really like Bernie Sanders. I've liked him for a long time because I used to watch a lot of MSNBC when I had insomnia in university. Mm. And he was a regular guest on that. So I watched a lot of MSNBC and CNN when I was in university because I had insomnia. And I needed something that was vaguely stimulating, but didn't require me to do anything. So I used to watch a lot of American cable news because this was just around the time that Obama had been elected and I was really interested in that kind of thing. There was a period in my life where I could tell you every senator in in the US Senate in about 2008, <laughs> which is the kind of like dull that I am. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember watching a Bernie Sanders yeah. film one time in the background I mean, something else. I I generally kind of like his ideas and boy it would be really nice to get universal health care and student loan debt forgiveness and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that just because I have multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt, but I do. I just don't think that he has the desire or skills for compromise and coalition building that the U.S. presidency requires. Yeah. He has a pretty solid voting record and reputation in the Senate for getting bills passed and working with both Republicans and Democrats. Like, I wish he played up more of that, because so much of what he's doing is this thing that I hate in politics, which is, I'm the anti-establishment candidate. It's like, you're a fucking politician, you are the establishment. At least right. own that. Because one of the candidates for Labour leadership last year was a guy called Andy Burnham, who is a really qualified guy. He's basically been in politics since he left university. And he was playing up this whole, I'm not part of the Westminster bubble, I'm just a typical Northern lad. And it's like, you have literally done nothing with your life but politics. Right. Just just own that. Just own it's it. Like, it should be a, you know, it should be a really big deal for that Hillary Clinton is very, very qualified to do that job. Yeah. I would argue that in many ways Bernie Sanders is also very, very qualified to do that job, but he's trying to play this idea that he is basically just Larry David. Yeah. Which is really funny, but you know, I yearn for the day where we can get women who are as fabulously disheveled in politics. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's kind of this political cycles oh i'm just an average joe you know when like rob ford up here for toronto mayo or george w bush down in america ran is like i'm your average joe uh no you're a millionaire yeah you were born very very rich (laughs) your political dynasty i mean like nothing makes me sadder than jeb's campaign like i didn't want jeb as president god no but his campaign was just so like it's not 1988 anymore, dude. What are you doing? The thing was as well, his campaign, its launch was so precisely managed. So much of it was about the Latino focus because his wife is Mexican, his children are Latino, you know, and that's a base that they need to get. And you see in that launch the way that he is trying to bring the focus to that. The next thing you see, Donald Trump's going, well, all Mexicans are rapists, and he starts winning. How do you, you know, fight against that? And I don't think George, uh, Jeb Bush... Or Jeb, as we should say, with the exclamation mark. Jeb! Really? <laughs> Jeb. Jeb! I don't think really he had the, the fight in him. All I could think of every time I saw him was that picture of him smugly sitting next to his mother and then I could hear Principal Skinner in my head. <laughs> you know, I'm not governor of the line, mother, and you never will be. Well, it's just, it feels like when Trump says things like that, you know, like all Mexicans are rapists, like... If the Republican establishment really doesn't like him, then why don't you go out in there and say, that is racist? But you can, because you still want to appeal to your racist base. Right. And also, you've spent eight years stoking the fires of racism against Obama by, you know, denying his citizenship and claiming that he's an evil fundamentalist Muslim. To call out Trump would be to admit that they helped to create Trump. And they're never going to do that. Mm-hmm. Even with their two most prominent candidates outside of Trump being Latino. They have basically, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I'm trying to find a way to put this. In order to appeal to the racist white vote, they've had to downplay a lot of their own selves. Mm-hmm. Like, Ted Cruz trying to speak Spanish is like Michael Bloomberg trying to speak Spanish. Or that amazing Michael Bloomberg Spanish Twitter account. Mm-hmm. And you could tell that that's the angle that Marco Rubio was trying to go for, was trying to appeal to, you know, hey, look, I'm the the immigrant experience come true and well and prosperous, even though all of the immigration reform he supports would have basically kicked his own father out of the country. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think what Jeb is going to do is going to sulk back home and he's going to spend the next 20 years grooming that son of his to run. Mm. The one who's also called George Bush. Because we need another one of those. Yeah, definitely. I swear to God, they have, they have more Georges than the British royal family. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You're up to you're up to seven now, so. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys yeah. are keeping better track of that than I am. Yeah. <laughs> True fact. Uh, reciting the the kings and queens of the UK is how I get myself to sleep when I can't sleep. Oh, that's sweet. If I go backwards or forwards, I will usually fall asleep somewhere in the middle of the Edwards. <laughs> Maybe the Henrys. But I can do it backwards a lot. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and mostly I can even keep the relationships of why every why each one inherited from the one before well, usually him. Straight too. Although the Wars of the Roses really fucked me up. <laughs> and I will say one of the things that I have I don't know if enjoyed is necessarily the right word about this election season, but I get to have 
really great excuses to watch more political documentaries and read more political books. Mm -hmm. So if you visit bibliodays.com, you will see a list I compiled of American politics-themed contemporary romances, (laughs) including the Emma Barry series, which is really sweet. Because all flirting should be done over the Democrats' relationship to the unions. (laughs) And I also get to watch like the war room and street fright and all that stuff again the war room right. is great that film has yeah. aged so well although it is weird to see james carville with hair <laughs> just on the sides you know not too much uh, i haven't watched any of this yet but cnn is doing a series on contentious hot mess pre- presidential elections called race to the white house that's um Produced and narrated by Kevin Spacey. Please tell me he's doing it with his Frank Underwood voice. I can't answer that because, as I said, I haven't seen any of it. Oh, um, yes. But also, I've watched all of season one of Madam Secretary, which is really good. It's oh, that's re- interesting. It yeah. kind of fell off the radar a little bit. Yeah, um, but it's really good. You should watch it. Since you brought up Kevin Spacey and Frank Underwood, the honest question. If you could have Frank Underwood as your president over any of the current field from either party, would you? Well, I mean, if he's constantly turning to the camera and telling us exactly what he's thinking, I mean, sure, why not? (laughs) Yeah, I'd be for that. I mean, Robin Wright as First Lady would be pretty cool. No. If you haven't had a chance, there are some really interesting political documentaries out there that are really worth your time. The, as I mentioned, The War Room is kind of the the king of them. It's about the Clinton campaign in 1992 and how it was basically run by George Stephanopoulos and James Carville and the way that they utilised the growing 24-hour news cycle, um, particular kind of... Uh, buzz phrases obviously it's the economy stupid is the big one it's a really fascinating insight into just the nitty-gritty of a bunch of dudes sitting around phones and televisions running democracy mm. uh, there's also a really wonderful documentary called street fight which is about the mayoral election in newark between sharp james and cory booker who is now the junior senator from new jersey i believe yep that has some really fascinating insights into the way that race plays a part in politics, particularly in African-American communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that Cory Booker was attacked for not being black enough. Mm-hmm. The way that Sharp James's campaign was running a very dirty campaign and tearing down a lot of his, you know, his posters, intimidating the filmmakers, intimidating a lot of his supporters and things like that. That's a really fascinating insight as well. What else is there? I watch a bunch of these, so I should be able to name more of them. There's a really interesting, like, 30-minute documentary on the New York Times about Christine Quinn's run for New York mayor, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating just to see her begin to just totally crumble as it becomes apparent she's not going to win. And there's just these looks that she's giving the cameras as she realizes, why the hell did I let these people film me? I don't think it's a perfect piece of work. I think it glosses over a lot of the reasons why people didn't vote for her. And it spends a lot of time focusing on this one group of people called the Anyone But Quinn campaign, whose main reasons for voting against her are she doesn't like animal rights very much. Just like, you know, oh, you 
really skewed priorities here. Yeah. And also, I haven't seen it yet, but it is coming out soon. It's Wiener, which is a documentary about Anthony Wiener's run for New York mayor. And also his Wiener. <laughs> and also Carlos Danger. Danger! <laughs> Sorry, John Oliver wasn't here to do it, so I did. Yes, I did the dance. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I've been told it's really fascinating. It's an insight into one man's particular ego, but also the relationship that he has with Huma Abedin, who's his wife, um, a very prominent aide to Hillary Clinton, and what it's like to be an exceptionally ambitious political couple who keeps getting, who keeps stumbling because one of them cannot keep it in his pants. Man, I used to like Anthony Weiner, but he was a congressman. Mm. I hate when Breitbart is right about something. Yeah, if you want any like political documentary recommendations, hit me up. I've got tons. And read um, Game Change, which mm. is most of it. I feel like is probably just scurrilous bitching from sacked aides. But once you get to all of the stuff about the McCain campaign bringing Sarah Palin on board, that is some class cringe comedy right there. Which is fun to watch in hindsight. Obviously, I imagine it wasn't as fun at the time. They also made a really cool uh, HBO movie out of that where Julianne Moore plays Sarah Palin and is really, really scarily good. There's a sequel as well called Double Down, which is about the the re-election campaign of Obama versus Mitt Romney, but I haven't read that one because I just don't find Mitt Romney very interesting. Yeah, that's okay. No one does. Except for Mitt Romney, clearly. I don't think even Mitt Romney actually thinks Mitt Romney is that interesting. (laughs) I'll forever remember there was a Saturday Night Live sketch where it was like Shepard Smith from Fox News was talking to Mitt Romney and they cut to his sons and they were all dressed the same and they all went, hello. And he went, oh, my thanks to Stephen King for creating that pair. Mm. I'm just looking at my shelves now, all of my politics books. Assassination Vacation by Sarah Vowell is really wonderful. It's basically Sarah Vowell's geeky trip to places of significance to the first three presidents who were assassinated. Hmm. This is what happens when a woman who really, really likes weird history gets to paid to explore it. So it opens with her going to a production of Stephen Sondheim's Assassins <laughs> and get really excited and trying to explain to people why she really likes presidential assassinations and people just walking away from her. So I really recommend that one. She's also written a new book about Lafayette. Lafayette! <laughs> which I imagine is doing quite well if only out of Hamilton long day. <laughs> <laughs> her book is called Lafayette in the somewhat United States that sounds about right so if you want to read that and while listening to Hamilton do so <laughs> and just read Sarah Vowell in general she's sort of fascinating kind of very idiosyncratic snarky take on history she, she wrote a book about um the annexation of Hawaii, which is quite interesting. It's called Unfamiliar Fishes. It's not as good as her other work, though, because it's quite clear that not enough time has passed to really kind of snarkily explore an issue that is still very, very raw to a lot of people in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. But it's got some interesting moments. But yeah, Assassination Vacation is by far and away her, her best book. I have to admire you for reading all these political books. Because <laughs> I just kind of feel like, oh, this is my life now. Since uh, 
I mean, our listeners don't know, but a friend of mine and I sort of started a campaign consulting business. So now that's what I do is campaigns and politics. And it's like, that's work. I just want to read a romance novel, (laughs) which is also work. I feel like this is the reason that so many prominent romance authors used to be lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. So are you kind of like Olivia Pope without the really crappy love life? Um, no. So what we're doing right now is, is like, we're, we have a couple of countywide races that we're um, doing some of the legwork for. Like, we're collecting signatures. In order to get on the ballot in Massachusetts, everybody needs to collect a certain number of signatures. So the reason I've been going to all of these caucuses is so that we go around and introduce and talk about the candidates that we're working for and collect signatures. And today, the first caucus I was supposed to go to was canceled, which I didn't find out until I got there. And I was like, oh, I could have slept in another hour. Democracy, you're terrible. And the second one was headed by Black Ladies in Roxbury. Had the best food of any of the caucuses I've been to. They had fried chicken, they had Jamaican rice, they had the sausage that the wife of one of their state reps made, which, like, changed my life. It was so good. And then somebody was like, oh, God, there might not be enough food and brought in four pizzas. (laughs) So that was awesome. (laughs) And then once we get everybody on the ballot, then there will be like the general campaign stuff of going to meetings and doing field operations and stuff like that and door knocking and other things. And we're probably going to be picking up a state Senate campaign in the next month and maybe a couple of state house races. So like democracy is my life now and there's so much of it. (laughs) So much. I feel like I need to take you a quiz of, which West Wing character are you? Like, are you Toby in this at this point in your life, or still no, more of a Josh? I'm more of a Josh, I think. I think I'm more of a Josh with a less disastrous love life, because that would imply that I have one at all. Oh. <laughs> so that is that's what I do now. I mean, lots of it is fun. Some of it is less fun. Yeah, it's much more fun. I don't know if fun's the right word, but like reading it from a safe distance 3,000 miles away. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I genuinely find all of this stuff so fascinating. I don't know if it's just because it's not a process that, well, it does affect me because American politics will affect everyone's life in a way. But Mm -hmm. there's something about that process that I don't have to be directly involved in. Yeah. And I I mean, it's, it's fun working on local races because they're somewhat less contentious, a little bit more entertainingly petty. (laughs) Oh, they can be. Like, it feels like the stakes are lower, even though the stakes are actually, you know, reasonably high, because it's the local politics that is what affects your life on a more day-to-day basis. Uh Am I making any sense? I can't even tell anymore. (laughs) No, I think you're making sense. It's one of those things where I think people have this idea that there's something kind of inherently enigmatic and glamorous about politics when really the stuff that directly affects you is like 
How often are my bins going to get taken out? Why are right. you not taking my bins out? Why are the streets really dirty? Why, why is there dog the... shit all over the garden? Who's going to why do something about this? Why is there lead in the water? Why is there lead in... Is there lead in the water? Whose job is it to keep lead out of the water? I don't know. Well, I do know. <laughs> I will say, uh, if you really want the... If you want my favourite book on politics to read, it's Nixon Land. Mm. It is like 800 pages long, but that book is thrilling. It is basically, in order to learn about the man, you have to learn about the entire kind of era and culture and history that made the man. So it is this fascinating kind of history of America in you know, the, the 60s when Nixon rises up through flower power to the... Um, you know, the anti-Vietnam war movement, there's a touch of the Mansons in there and the kind of rise of that particular conservatism that led Nixon to become, you know, head of state. It is so fascinating. He's written a new book as well called The Invisible Bridge, which is about the Reagan years, but I haven't read that yet. They're very big books, and I, well, I have lots of time now, I guess I could read them. Mm-hmm. He's also written a book about Barry Goldwater, but I haven't read that either. There Who my grandmother really voted that. for, because her dad would have. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I genuinely don't know how my parents vote. Like, I know they voted no to independence. Because mm-hmm. they were they were vocal about that. But they've always told me never talk about your politics. But I have a Labour Party membership, so I do talk about my politics. But <laughs> I know she doesn't like the SNP, and I know she doesn't like Tory. So, realistically, I think she might vote Labour. I don't know. <laughs> But in this area, it's heavily Tory SNP, so it's not really a you know a vote. Mm-hmm. So here's a question I've been wondering in the three years that we've been friends. Okay, why are the Tories? Why are the Conservatives called Tories? Where did what? Where did that come from? I think that's just an old. I'm actually not sure the origins are. Let me look that up. It's Whigs and Tories, right? Like was that? Yeah, but Whigs anymore. The Whig Party doesn't exist anymore. Like, I always assumed Tory was, like, like from the word co- conservative, like, conservatory. You know what I mean? Like, there must have been some... It's based on a British version of traditionalism and conservatism. Which, yeah. That explains right. nothing. Like, I know what they stand for, assholery. Yeah, pretty much. That's all you need to know. But I just like word origins. Okay, Wikipedia says it's Irish. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Wikipedia says the word Tory derives from Middle Irish word Tory. I don't. I can't pronounce it. I won't even. Outlaw, robber, or brigand. Oh well, I'm down with that. Okay, <laughs> that'll that be wrong. Make sense. Them. Sorry, Ireland. That totally makes sense. <laughs> Whereas Wig was originally short for Wigamore, meaning cattle driver. Used to describe Western Scots who came to Leith for corn. <laughs> Let's go back to those days. <laughs> politics oh yeah the thing is in in britain we have uh a lot of our media is surprised where i owned by rupert murdoch but we also have the bbc which is the state-owned network but the tories hate that because they've always had this idea that they are this left-wing conspiracy so they've been cutting a lot of bbc's funding They've been justifying that as doing it because a couple of years ago, a very prominent British celebrity called Jimmy Savile was found out to be the most prominent paedophile and rapist in British history. You know, he used his, he was a British TV presenter and DJ who worked on kids shows who used his power to rape hundreds and hundreds of kids. 
and it was found out that this was not only the kind of the culture of the BBC in the seventies, but there were potential cover ups and they've been using this as an excuse to really batter at the BBC and cut their funding. So in order to make sure they keep up with ratings of other networks, because Sky is now so commonplace in the UK. It's like mm-hmm. our satellite provider, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. And they have their own news and sports and things like that. And they've basically bought up everything the BBC can't afford anymore. So the BBC's news coverage has gotten... It's gotten a little American. You know, there's a lot of like, well, we're going to talk about this issue, but instead of actually talking about the issue, we're just going to find two people from opposing ends of the spectrum and see what they think. And it's hard to watch. That's a terrible import. I'm sorry. (laughs) I feel like it would have got its way here eventually. I actually watched a documentary recently called Best of Enemies, which was about the um, the 1968 election, I believe, when ABC were tanking in the ratings and their studio was literally falling apart and they didn't have the money or the resources to do proper convention coverage. So they just hired William Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal to have debates and the two of them hated each other. Like, they basically only agreed to do it because they wanted to de- destroy one another. Yeah. And this got massive ratings and really kind of led to the rise of the reactionary kind of news coverage. And it's a fascinating film to watch. It is quite entertaining to watch these two people just tear lumps out of each other. But there's a moment where Buckley calls Gore Vidal queer. And you can see the look on Gore Vidal's face where he's just like, fucking jackpot. And it haunts William Buckley for the rest of his life, apparently. So I think it's on Netflix, if you ever want to watch it. It's really interesting, but it's very, very reminiscent of what basically every news channel is like now. It's interesting to see the origins of that. Well, I think we've solved democracy. (laughs) (laughs) That's To quote Homer Simpson, democracy doesn't work. Nope. To be fair, neither does anything else. (laughs) To quote Malcolm Tucker, it's a fucking omni-shambles. I can't believe that I got for this whole thing and didn't mention the thick of it. Watch the thick of it. It is basically to British politics what Spinal Tap was to rock music. Or if you're American, just watch Veep, because it's made by the same people. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That makes a lot of sense. So, someday, someday, after I've had a chance to watch, you know, all of House of Cards, (laughs) (laughs) we'll do a show on political traumas oh I'm so ready for that but it is not this day this is just political drama (laughs) (laughs) and you've got a year of it left my condolences yeah well we've got a year of it left and then I mean like people are going to start positioning themselves for the 2020 race as soon as the nominations for the 2016 race have been decided. Because that's the world we live in now. So I guess we'll have this topic again in 2020. <laughs> because Anglophies will totally be, still be here for this. Yes. Stay tuned for our live recording from our underground bunker. <laughs> <laughs> right. Either that or we're going to pool all of our money and go buy an island and just live there. Any islands free in Canada? 
Probably. We have many of them. You two are welcome in Canada. I will be in the airport <laughs> with Tim Hortons coffee, meaning all of my American friends who will be refugees <laughs> this time, may be refugees this time, next year, if things go wrong. <sighs> I'm sorry, I know this joke probably doesn't seem particularly funny at this point. No, it's still funny. It's still funny. It's just... <laughs> it's just immigration is such a hot mess right now. <laughs> Justin is fixing it. Don't worry, Justin is fixing it. I have been to save us all. Been studying in pay for her PhD, and she sort of put her her studies on hold until she can get the level of permanent residency that gets her home fees. And they keep changing the rules on her. Yeah, the UK immigration system is not too great right now either. Yeah. And it's, it's, she's like, I really can't afford to just sort of be hanging out because she can't work, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I can't afford to just hang out waiting until now it's 2019 before she can start her PhD program. That she's seriously considering going and starting a program in Oslo because she can sort of afford that. There's some nice stuff in Norway. Yeah, she doesn't want to leave the, the life that she's built for herself in the UK behind. Is true kind of the main thing that's stopping her from doing that right now. So it's frustrating for everyone. On for the right side, we do have a great display of European democracy coming up soon. Eurovision! Yay! <laughs> have to work it in there somewhere. Good job. Good job. Good job. I still have my great-grandfather's naturalization papers for his Canadian citizenship, so maybe I can leverage that into something. All for the liberal part of your services? Sure. Sure. Uh, my French isn't very good, but... I can certainly apologize for speaking bad French. <laughs> the last time I was in Montreal, <laughs> I went to Tim Hortons and I was the only one in my group who spoke French at all. And I very carefully was like doing the breakfast orders. And then I got to a bottle of water and I was like, fuck, I can't remember the word for bottle. And the guy without a French accent was like, bottle of water, got it. And I'm like, I get credit for trying. <laughs> I tried. I was trying to be polite and not an asshole, so you don't get to mock me. And, and Amanda and I will be in Sweden this summer, so we'll see what happens with that. I already know that everyone in already speaks English. So. Well, then, this has been episode 42. 42, yes. It's still 42, right? Life, the universe, and everything. It's still the episode 42, and the. The American election's still going on. God damn it! I was so hopeful. Yeah, we hope our listeners found this interesting, and we'll be back next month. With a less heavy topic. We hope. We hope. We don't know. We actually don't know. <laughs> It'll be a surprise to us two listeners. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye. You have been listening to Anglophies, a Made of Fail production. 16 presidential primary bullshit.